Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Yeah, this is Phil Stevens, Iron Strength Guild. Uh, I lift in powerlifting, Highland Games, and whatever else comes around the bike. So, this is Marty Gallagher, mm-hmm. World Champion Team Coach. Uh, my name is Kirk Karwaski. I'm a uh, World Champion Powerlifter. There we go. Excellent. Yep, we have heavy hitters today, everybody. <laughs> uh, we are going to start with a little bit of news before we get into the guys' origin stories. Just quickly here. Uh, Isaac from Twitter uh, sent in something through our Iron Radio intern. He says, hey, guys, I've been trying to increase my deadlift, uh, and I can get it to 485 just fine. Uh, No straps or belts or anything, but trying to go heavier, and my back always ends up rounding. Do you have any tips for strengthening my back? Um, Okay. Uh, This is is Marty. Uh, Get your legs stronger. Typically, what we find is that uh, most of the most of the fellows that that we work with that where their where their spines bow, uh, they're they're usually having to start with a high hip position to break the bar from the floor because of lack of leg strength. What we like to do is we build our conventional and our sumo deadlift up, starting from the bottom up with leg strength. Kirk. Okay. Um, make sure that your head is up, and that when the bar leaves the floor, the the your shoulder is directly over the bar. You know, the, the center of your shoulder socket needs to be directly over the bar. If it's over, back off the bar a little bit, but make sure that head is up. And what Marty said: if if the shoulders get in front of the bar, you have to the spinal column has to become a crane to derrick it back into position. That's what we avoid at all costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, without, without knowing any more about the guy, too, is like, what size are you? You know, I mean, if you're 148 pounds, you might need to eat. So <laughs> No, it's true. He did. <laughs> you know, to be fair, he um, posted a picture, um, okay. and I can't really share that with you guys. But he looks like a, a nice medium to large size guy. He's not a, a waif, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, we see that a lot now. So <laughs> What we uh, said is universal for big, yeah. small, fat, and tall. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, so basically, you get stronger. Um, now let's get into Kirk and, and Marty. So, um, I don't know who to start with here, but I guess we'll go Kirk. Um, I, I've read up on you, and I think everybody's kind of familiar with you. But um, what did what got you started in powerlifting at all? You know, uh, I was born. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it actually is very funny. Um, I remember when I was about five years old. And I was lugging in a gallon of milk, you know, bringing the groceries in. And I couldn't put it up on the counter. And my mom grabbed it and set it up there. And it pissed me off. And I just always wanted to be strong. 
And then when I was about eight, the answer to everything became very clear when The Incredible Hulk came on TV. <laughs> That's the answer to every problem that I have. <laughs> yeah. And I started asking for barbells. And finally, when I was 12, I got my barbell set and the rest was history. I mean, I wanted to do it before I ever even did it. It was, I was just, it was, I was like why I was put on the planet. <laughs> well, I know I, I read up that you, uh, before that you'd like bench press your dad's old tires on a board and uh, things like this. This was probably pre-barbell age, huh? For you. Well, no, no, actually, once I got barbells, I didn't have a bench. So in the basement, there were the snow tires. And so I put boards across those, and that way I could lay down and bench press. Nice. You know. And uh, the first time you ever tried to squat, you squatted 300 pounds at 150. Is this correct? Yeah, when I was 14 and I got into high school, um, we had a we had an excellent weight training program, and they had these boards up on the wall, and if you did a certain weight, you got your name up there. Well, you had to bench 200. Well, I did that, and you had to deadlift 300, and I did that, and I said, let me try this squat thing, <laughs> and it took me like two attempts. The first one I missed, but I got 300. That's what you had to, you know, what you had to do, and I weighed a buck forty-five, buck fifty, maybe. You know, Kirk, would this have been in the? This was the eighties then. Uh, yeah, it was like nineteen eighty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Back when they actually deadlifted in high school, now it's just cleans, horrible cleans. But um. <laughs> Now, you credit a lot of your athletics as a kid in high school to uh, being great as a powerlifter, correct? Yeah. Well, because I, you know, had developed confidence and, you know, I was strong, I tried other things. Um, the the first sport I really went out for was track, and I wanted to be a shot and biscuits guy. And, you know, I'm five foot eight. I sucked at it. And um, there was a, a meet... And in, in, uh, they entered a B team, you know, the field guys in a relay, just simply because it was free points. And I got done, and they said, uh, Kirk, why didn't you tell us that you were fast? And I said, <laughs> uh, am I? And from then on, no more shot and discus. I was a sprinter. And then I went out for football. And, you know, after the first year, once I finally understood what I was really supposed to do, I was a pretty good football player. I played, you know, a little bit of junior college. But there again, I'm five foot eight. What am I supposed to be? I'm supposed to be a power lift. Everything else was just recreational. And I knew it. So, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, lifting made such a huge difference in my life because when I was young, we moved a lot. And, you know, I was just shy and secure fat kid. And, uh, you know, Lipton did exactly what I believed it would. So everything worked out really well. Yeah. So you basically started powerlifting then at uh, teenage years. How old was that? I know you won the Teenage Nationals three times. So wh yeah. what age did you really start entering those? I lied about my age when I was 
13 to get into a meet because you had to be 14. Oh. <laughs> and I heard my first meet. <laughs> and then where along the lines then, Marty, did you did you guys meet? I don't remember. Well, well um, <laughs> after, after going to a few contests, I realized, you know, my football coach, he didn't really know powerlifting, and I needed some real powerlifters to teach me. And so I lifted at a Maryland State meet, which I won. Um, I, was, I was 17, so this was 83, 84. And I was asking people, and there happened to be the guy the next town over, this guy named Joe Paul Vanelli. And someone introduced me to him, and he said, sure, you can come over to our house. And lo and behold, I, found, I stumbled into a great group of guys, and through them, I met Marty. So what part, I mean, when, so through then at about 17, I think is what you said. So, I mean, then, I mean, mm. uh, through all these seven nationals, junior worlds, IPF worlds, blah, 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 you know, what, what part did your guys' career, I mean, uh, how much of this did you guys do together? All of it. All of it. Well, um, the teenage years, you know, the teenage nationals and stuff, Marty, I think Marty and I really got together when I was 20. Because I, I think Marty, Marty tells the story about uh, you know, the gym we were training at. And I was 19 and, you know, squatted eight or eight and a quarter. And, you know, I was crazy back then. It would take me eight, nine steps to set up a squat. And it was just somebody was going to get hurt. And Marty, do you want to take that story over? <laughs> Not particularly, but I will. Uh, yeah, uh, Kirk. Uh, Kirk made good inroads initially in the old ADFPA, the American and USDF, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he was uh, obviously a talented kid. Uh, he was bottom heavy. Okay. Uh, Obviously, he was going to be a good squatter. He was a good bencher, too. Not a great bencher. His deadlift was uh, needed work. And I had uh, I'd been working with a guy named Elliot Smith uh, and, of course, Mark Chalet. I, worked with, I was uh, Mark's coach for six years. And uh, I approached Kirk, and I said, hey, listen, you know, if you want to move into the bigs, the you know, USPFs, uh, you're gonna have to get your squats down, brother. You know, uh, he was a strong, oh, like the rest of the world. He was a very strong squatter down to that point where you've got to release the hips, dip below parallel, re-engage the hips, and then come back up. And uh, down to the uh, that point where the where you had to disengage the hips, he could handle eight and a quarter back then. But in the USPF, if you weren't uh, two inches below parallel they weren't passing it and uh we 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 had uh we had to pay our dues kirk got uh smacked around a little bit the first couple years that uh we went to the uspf nationals you want to pick up on that kirk yeah well the first you know i've won the teenage nationals you know three times and my first year at the real show um i bombed out and you know there were shenanigans and things that ensued after that then the following year um i got down to my third squat and still didn't have one in and you know i told marty 
If yeah. I don't get this one, I'm done. I quit. Uh, I quit. <laughs> I quit powerlifting. Uh, yeah, uh, now, so, now, 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 let me pick up here, Kirk, because this is a yeah. good. This is this is good. So, uh, so we're at the USPF's the second year. Now, I could not talk him out of opening with an 804 junior world record. Okay. Actually, it was 821. <laughs> 821. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, that's that's what I'm dealing with as a coach. So, first attempt, uh, three reds. Second attempt, two reds. Third attempt, he goes, if I miss this attempt, I quit powerlifting. And the look on his face was he was absolutely, he meant it. So, as we're going out to the chalk box for this attempt, I look out, and in the front row, there's Eddie Cohn and Doug Furness, and they're sitting in the front row. And for whatever reason, they somebody must have told a joke, so they, they you know they were just kind of looking at each other and laughing. So I jabbed Kirk in the elbow. I jabbed Kirk in the side with my elbow. I said, "Kirk, look at Ed and Doug. They're laughing at you." Oh. <laughs> Kirk turned. Kirk turned beat red. He looked over there. And all of a sudden, psychologically, he was on another level. Now, I'd like to say that he went out and crushed the weight, but he went out and Mike Lambert, the uh, editor and owner of Powerlifting USA, later said it was the single most difficult lift he'd ever seen in his life. Wow. Okay. He made that, that lift by the skin of his teeth. He got two whites. It took eight seconds oh at the bottom <laughs> to get to the top. And yeah. I have the video. I've clocked it. So it was at eight seconds to get up with it. And just as the guy said racket, I yep. started falling forward. And the guys got it in the rack, and I was flat on the floor. Yep. Uh, wow. Hey, let me ask you guys. <laughs> do you think that was your crucible moment where you sort of became what you would become? Yes. Yeah. No. Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I I don't have an actual, you know, this is it moment. Okay. But if if Marty says so, you know, he was he's he's he watched well, everything. You would, so. Well, you wouldn't have gone very far if you'd quit. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Well, when you put it that way, yeah, he's got you there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. A lot of this stuff we'll get into later, but um, Marty, getting into you some more. So you lifted, and then let's talk about you had an injury, and then that kind of led you to coaching more instead of lifting. Is that right? Yeah, I was a um, uh, age seventeen. I was teenage national Olympic weightlifting champion. I set uh, two national records. I set a national press record of two seventy. My snatch was 235. I clean and jerk 315. This is at 195 pounds body weight. I'm 5'10", and this is uh, obviously drug-free. But my technique was so bad that there was no future for me as an Olympic weightlifter. 1965, powerlifting came into existence. I happened to be in a powerlifting hotbed area, and I fell in with a hardcore group of serious lifters at a very young age. By the time I was 14 years old, I was training with grown men and being drilled on techniques by, well, you know, Hugh Cassidy was the first super heavyweight world powerlifting champion. Hugh was my mentor. Uh, after we quit Olympic 
weightlifting, I took off for five years. I got into the uh, martial arts. I got into the Chinese internal martial arts, Xingyi, Bagua, Tai Chi. I studied under a guy named Robert Smith, who was the foremost uh, internal martial arts guy in the country, ex-CIA station chief in Formosa. Interesting people. So I'm studying under Bob Smith and Hugh Cassidy simultaneously in the 70s. Got the hardest of the hard, the softest of the soft. That formed my approach. Uh, I my own competitive career took off, uh, but I had a 1983. I had a, a freaky accident. I had squatted 845 the week before at Mark Chalet's. And I took a light squat day, and the bar slipped off my back, and I had a compound fracture on my left lower leg. Uh, uh, so that was the end of my my big league career. I uh, had was within 25 pounds of Danny Wobler's world record in the squat at the time. Interestingly enough, 10 years later, Kirk broke that record with the 904 effort in the 242 pound class. So it was uh, yeah, nine fourteen. So it was uh, kind of I don't know synchronicity or, or something that uh, the record that I had been after my my guy got it for me. You know what I mean? Right, right. So I got into coaching. I worked with Mark Chalet for years. Uh, Mark was the deadlift king. Uh, we got Mark his APF world title. Uh, we got him second place at the USPF worlds um mark mark taught me my deadlift style that he learned from hugh cassidy uh so it was a it was a real hotbed area that we lived in chalet's was uh that was a that was the the best hardcore gym i've ever ever belonged to in my life Uh, and i have a lot of good memories from there we got into coaching uh i worked with john black at black's health world okay uh, we won five national team titles in three different organizations. I was named the world team coach in 1991. We won in Orebro, Sweden against 33 other countries. Uh, that was the high point of my coaching career. Uh, and, and, you know, since then, it's, uh, it's, it's been, I've, I've worked with all types of individuals since then. Hey, Marty, Kirk I... And I- I was going to say, I've got a question for you that, I mean, I'm an academic, right? So I'm interested in partly, like, you're an accomplished author. What what drew you into, I mean, you always hear talk of purposeful primitive and that sort of thing. Um, what drew you in that way? Is that like a side project? Is it really woven into everything you've done, you know? Uh, now, now what, my writing? Yeah, the writing stuff, yeah. I've been a full-time professional writer for 35 years. I, I work for the Washington Post. I'm okay. A, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, have legitimate journalistic credentials. <laughs> Not some guy who, who you know, writes uh, articles and sends them into, uh, you know, some website. No, right. I've made my living writing for a lot, a lot of years. So that predated even the strength stuff then? No, actually, I got into professional writing. Uh, Hugh Cassidy, my powerlifting coach, was actually also my writing mentor. Hugh was a a, a renaissance man. Uh, In addition to being the super heavyweight world powerlifting champion, uh, Hugh also was an incredible bass player. 
Uh, he played with Danny Gatton and Roy Buchanan, all these powerhouse players in the D.C. area. He was one of the country's foremost metal sculpturists. Okay? Hmm. He was a botanist. He would graft pear trees on apple trees. He would run uh, botany experiments. Uh, he spoke fluent German. He read Nietzsche in German. I co-authored four articles with him for Powerlifting USA in 1977. That was the start of my writing career. Okay. You know, that's cool. I've often critiqued uh, a lot of the fitness world, like the strength world, too. But, you know, the scientists often aren't real scientists. The journalists aren't real journalists. But you were. <laughs> you know, it's almost. And or. I, I don't want to get into the topic of the day uh, too quickly here. We're going to move in that direction. <clears throat> it just makes me think about like what you said was, you know, Renaissance man. Like, you start to almost romanticize. Like, is that gone? You know, and I don't want to get into, like I said, the then and now topic just yet. But that makes. That makes me think that maybe we've lost something. You know, you guys did seem no. like Renaissance guys. No, we, no, 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 we have. Yeah. Yeah. Before we go to the topic of the day, like I said, like Lonnie's alluding to, kind of everything, <laughs> everything shoots that way. But I want to, Kirk, so you've done a lot of amazing things from 1,000 for 2, 800 for 5, um, 826 raw. What what in your head is your, your most impressive? I'm kind of tied up. Um, the 800 for five and the thousand for two are my favorites. Um, and like I say, they're they're different. Um, but yeah, the hardest thing I ever did was the thousand for two because well, the week before I did 980 for two, and I was I was huffing. I mean, it was it wasn't easy. And I spent, you know, I got done benching on Saturday at the end of the week, and Monday was squat day. And I spent the whole weekend sitting on the edge of the couch, rocking back and forth, wondering what to do. Uh, you know, just like, you know, the guy on Animal House with the angel and devil. <laughs> I had the angel saying, take the grand, stroke it, put it back, and go into the meat fresh and happy. And the devil was like, Fuck you. Are you kidding me? You pussy. And, you know, I spent the whole weekend like that. Yeah. And I didn't know until I got under it, and that first one just was in such a hurry to come back up. There was no question as to whether to, to, to take a breath and go again. So, can, I, can, I, but, can, I jump, can I jump in for just a minute? Uh as impressive as the thousand for two was, and I, you know, I was right there. The eight hundred for five was done in the same cycle. Kirk, how many weeks previous was that? Oh God, that had to be ten weeks, eight, okay. ten weeks. Here, here's what I've have always wondered: if we had just been able to continue with the raw squatting, just the belt. Because Kirk was light at this point, he was ten, ten weeks out, and and he was he was light in his body weight, uh, and I've always, yeah, I'd always wondered what if we had been able to finish out the entire cycle, raw, what would he have done, what could he have squatted raw? I'm thinking, I'm going to say nine twenty, and this is a two seventy five body weight. Kirk, what would you say? Nine twenty five. The, the math is there. If you can do 800 for two, you can squat 850. 
and every rep after that is another 25 pounds. Also, Kirk's 800 for five was done on the breath. In other words, one breath for every rep. He did not get to rep three and then huff three or four breaths to get rep four and then huff three or four breaths to get rep five. Brad Gillingham, my buddy Brad, saw it and he said, Marty, he said, if that was me or you, when we got to five, we would have kept breathing and we would have got eight with the 800. He said, he, it was amazing. 800 for five on one breath? Yeah. Right, yeah. Well, it, it wasn't exactly one breath. There was always the... There was always okay. the, the cleansing breath and one in, but it was everyone between, you know, Marty wrote a thing up, and then when you time it and you watch it, everyone was exactly the same. Identical. I think that I could have done seven yep. that day. But I was supposed to do that, and, and that was the last week without knee wraps, and my knees were starting to, to you know, get angry. Oh, suck and it up. What, Come on. Well, but no, it was that was what was on the plate, and I knew it was a big deal. But it, it you know, really, in in hindsight, you know, it's like, wow, that really was something. <laughs> you know, ought, to me, it also, was just the the number du jour. You know? He ought, also that also that same cycle we had. Uh, what was the eight hundred deadlift? Was that eight hundred for two or three? Oh. And then the following well, week. Eight and a quarter for one, okay. Kirk's yeah. deadlift always got the got the shit knocked out of it in competition because of the squat. Yeah. The squat took the edge off his deadlift, uh, but uh, you know, again, he was a legitimate eight twenty five deadlifter. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, if I stupid small hands, if I can, <laughs> let, you know, guys, let me return to the the thousand for a double. If I remember right. What impressed me the most about that, and I'm glad that's on film, right? Yeah. Is Kirk, you said something like "leave it, leave it on my back" or something like that. And it was it was really yeah, motivating. I want to hold it. Yeah, yeah I want to hold it. Hold it. <laughs> yeah. well, what happened was I came up with that second one, and as I locked it out, it wasn't heavy. Yeah. It, it felt like I had two and a quarter on my back, and plus, you know, my mind was blown, and I just wanted to take a second yeah, and think about what I just did and when in God's name is a thousand pounds not heavy on your back, yeah. you know, yeah. that's never going to happen again. So I want to stand here with a thousand pounds not heavy on my back. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, make it last a little. <laughs> yeah, I was savoring the moment. Yeah. Well, I think this is a good way to segue to the next part because I think everything else runs into that. So... You want to take the short break right now, Lonnie, and then we'll go from there? Sounds good. All right, folks, we'll be back in just a minute or two. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you, uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle. Oh, you poor meathead. All that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated 
by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Hi, we are back. We've got Marty Gallagher and Kurt Kowalski. And now it's time to talk then and now. And the first thing that pops out to my head is, you know, I'm, I, I, I get to see Eddie Cohn quite a bit, things like that at meets. One thing that always struck me is that all of a sudden, like Ed even didn't, I mean, he's known as the greatest of all time and, and this and that. Um, he is the greatest but, of all time. He, well, yeah, wait tell, a minute. He's not known as. Yeah, yeah he, he is. is. But, yeah, no. Sure. <laughs> yeah. What I'm getting at here, though, is even Ed, uh, he didn't start really getting the attention he deserved until the last couple of years. And like people like you, Kirk, um, when we announced we were having you on, people were amazed. And it's like, what do you think it is now? We see a lot of guys come up now that get Insta famous um, right away. But then there's greats like you guys that should have a bigger voice that don't. Why? We predate the internet. You think that's Period. it? I mean, yeah. If the internet was was up back then, um, I probably would, you know, be doing podcasts and and stuff, and you know, I might not have to work. Yeah. So. Makes sense. Yeah. No, no, I mean, it's, yeah, it is, and I mean, it's just and, I, and, and because you know, like I'm, you know, with all the social media, and I'm not really all that savvy, and yeah. don't really want to be. Um, <laughs> that's what that's what hurts me. Yeah, and the fact that you know I haven't competed in twenty friggin' years. Yeah, but you know the guys now that work the social media and have talent, bless their hearts. You know they're yeah. able to be real famous. Yeah. Another thing I want to touch on—it's real big, right? So you, in your career, you pretty much ate up to all your competitions. Is that correct? Pretty much. Wait, you, what? One thing we see now that I'm seeing now 
a lot of lifters spend a lot of time cutting weight for too long. Uh, like you see a lot of people fighting to stay in lighter weight classes so for a lot longer. I mean, what do you think? What is your take on this? I mean, compared to when you were doing it at a high level. Well, if you're when when you're let's let's take the two twenty class. You know, if you weigh over two thirty. You shouldn't cut down to 220. You should push up to 242. You know, get bigger. You'll get stronger. Um, so if you're cutting more than half the weight class, you're, you're kicking yourself in the ass. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. Uh, but I would say this. I think that, that, that in powerlifting, we're really talking a, a mass per cubic inches of height. I mean... It, you're not you're not going to do well in powerlifting if you're six foot three and 180 pounds. There's a density factor that has to be taken into account. You have to, if you're serious about optimizing your powerlifting performance, then as my old coach Hugh Cassidy used to say, eat your way through the sticking points. Because mm -hmm. I wanted to be a super heavy. I wanted to I wanted to weigh three and a quarter. But I could not get my weight up that high. Back in those days, the biggest that I ever could get was I got to about 295. And I said, well, if I'm, if I'm going to be a super, I have to weigh at least 320. Yeah. But that was my goal, was to be a super heavyweight. We, we routinely slammed four to six quarts of whole milk a day. I mean, that was just uh, de rigueur back in, back in the 70s. Uh, and I think so much of that is lost in this day and age. It's a, it's a drug culture today. Uh, we won't even get into the corrupted judging and the monoliths and that stuff because uh, it, it seems everything today is about how do we make heavyweights light. Back in our day, back when we were coming up, we were about how do we make lightweights heavy. I mean, we would train with, <laughs> we would train with no gear. So that when we did put the gear on, it meant something. Kirk would jump from uh, 685 for eight without a belt to 800 for five, just putting the damn belt on. The yeah. belt meant something because he didn't wear it all the time. Okay. Yeah, the That's belt was, the, was a 60 pound jump for the next week if you added yeah, the belt. 60 just, pounds right off. Just, just the belt. Okay. Uh, Eddie used to. Eddie routinely would train in the off season without wearing any gear. Uh, he'd do his stiff legs. He'd do all his stuff with that. You know, he'd be conventional pulling. This is back when he was still able to sumo. Uh, and that was our strategy. Let's get as strong as we possibly can without this stuff. Then we'll put it on. That was the, we, that was the approach. And we slammed calories. And I used to take it even further than that because not only was it not gear, but I'd have on my, my, street tennis shoes and i'd use an olympic bar yep. and only 45 pound plates yep. everything to make it harder harder yeah. <clears throat> if do you, do you understand that do you, do you understand that dichotomy i mean nowadays it's everything is about how do we make it easier yeah, yeah. back in those days how do we make it harder yeah we used to spend the off season deadlifting standing on a hundred pound plate yeah oh yeah Yep. Mm -hmm. Deficits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pause squats, uh, long pause benches, dumbbell benches, uh, you know, 
uh, all kinds of stuff that that we're, we're looking to increase the degree of difficulty not uh, and also we always sought out and fought through the sticking points we didn't find little sneaky ways to sneak right. through the sticking points okay we sought them out we embraced them we struggled through them that's where the adaptive response lies that's where the games lie nowadays <laughs> everybody's trying to figure out how do we avoid the sticking and it shows in the physiques. These guys are not muscled up like they were back in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. You look at the guys that, that, that were of our generation, John Gamble, Kaz, Larry Pacifico, Ed, Kirk, uh, Doug. These guys were muscle monsters. Yeah, Jimmy yeah, Cash. Jack. Uh, these guys were, were rocked out. Lamar Gant. Uh, now David you look Jacoby. At David Jacoby. Oh, my God. What a, um, Joe Ladnier. Oh, man, these guys were monsters. And it was because they bore the weight. Yeah. Hey, you guys, tell me about J Dave Jacoby actually was trained by Pep Wall at my gym. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, that's where I train at Bodybuilders in Akron. Um, you, but that's you like. Must, you must be so old. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm 50. <laughs> so. Yeah, Pep, Pep. Yeah, we tried. We would try to recruit Dave for blacks every year, and Dave said, "No, no, no, Marty. You know, I live for Pep." Right? There's a lot of loyalty there, even now. You know. Now you know the I interesting thing. I tried to hate Dave Jacoby, and you know, because I was trying to take his his spot, couldn't hate that guy. He's a nice <laughs> damn guy on the <laughs> No one ever beat Dave. No nice. one I ever didn't. beat Dave. No, you didn't. When did you beat Dave? I did. No, I said I did not. Yeah, you did not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't right. be jumping up on me, Kirk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, now look. Now look, the interesting thing about Dave was he he only trained one, one day a week when he was on the road driving trucks. Mm. National, yeah, international level day. guy, one heavy day a week. Boom. That's funny you're saying that. Cause Phil and I have been talking about that lately, you know, the pros and cons of infrequent training like that especially when you're carrying the kind of loads that you guys have been able to do christ you know when i did my raw meat in 2004 i trained one day a week yeah we, we're currently kirk and i are currently working with 10 lifters in uh a country garage gym in frederick maryland and we work with them sunday for two hours and that's it that's all the training they do for the week Every single one of them is making incredible progress. Squat bench yeah. dead. Squat bench dead. A little arm work. See you later. Yeah. No, it's amazing how that's changed. What? Let's get into then uh, training then and now. I mean, it's big right now. You see this come the squat every day and blah. You know, is all the rage. But I mean, what what do you think uh, is is still the best? Show us the results. Who's beaten what we did? Yeah. Why would we take cues <clears throat> from them? I don't get it. Yeah. Kirk, what say you something. <laughs> I see. I liked. You know, I was taught that way, and I liked one time a week. To me, it was more of a mental discipline. If you screw the pooch and miss something, you got to fret about that for a whole seven days yeah. until you can come in and redeem yourself. Right. And that sucks. I'd have, if it was those rare times I had bad workouts once I got myself together and was really producing. Um, man, I'd, I'd be, I, I wouldn't be able to sleep yeah. when I got home, I, you know, if I missed something. 
I mean, it was like it was like somebody you know killed me. Oh. I mean, I uh, just a motivator. So when you came in, you had to have your you had to have yourself together. You weren't screwing around on Facebook with you know on your phone during a workout. And and you didn't get five opportunities because you're doing five times five yeah. to get it right. Yeah. And again, I think that the whole volume approach to power training is like flogging the muscle to death. What we did was just shot it through the heart with a shotgun. Boom. <laughs> okay. And and that's the schism. There's a, there's always an inverse proportional relationship between volume and intensity. Yeah. We were radical toward intensity. intensity. Nowadays, it seems like they're radical toward the volume. I think a lot of the volume trainers don't have anything else to do. You know, they can they can afford to spend a couple hours a day, four, five, six days a week in the gym. Mm -hmm. It's I, I don't get it. I, it's uh, there's too too much of life to live to 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 train that way. Hey guys, let me let me Marty, you in particular. We had you on the show about three hundred episodes ago. I don't know if you remember, <laughs> but yeah, that was think, one of the high points of my life. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> so I think at the time we had discussed like the real performance now versus then. You know, uh, has performance in your mind? And I know I'm setting this up, right? You're gonna probably tirade on this, but. Has performance substantially increased? Are the guys that much further ahead than they were, you know, say in the you know eighties and nineties? Or no, they're going backwards. Mm -hmm. Come on, can you elaborate on that? Well, I mean, how do you compare? Uh, are you talking about geared lifting? I mean, I mean, what 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 are we what are we comparing here? So I'm a little a little fuzzy on that. Right. Well, either I mean, either I'm just looking for open-ended you no know, question here. Like, well, again, know. I think that if you look at the physiques and you look at the performance of of the guys that came up in the in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and you compare that to what you're seeing out there today, I, I you know, I'm biased. Uh, and I have to stand by my biases. And I got to be honest with you, I am not totally attuned to who's who and what's what and in terms of the current powerlifting situation. Mm -hmm. I will say this, how do you compare any squat that was done on a monolift to uh, a squat done without it? Right there, you yeah. changed the lift to something totally different. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the judging, how do you compare an obviously four inches high squat to a squat below parallel. And the equipment and the gear thing is like, where does the man end and the gear begin? Yeah. Um, I had a friend of mine ask me several years ago, they said, oh, they were gonna induct the guy who did the first thousand pound bench press into the hall of fame. And they said, what's your opinion? And I said, well, I think they should induct the bench shirt. <laughs> right, uh. yeah. No, that's what that's what I wanted. Thank you. That's you know, just I, I want well, your biases. Never, I want your opinions, right? Yeah. See, the, uh, in my mind, I see the geared lifting is kind of a dying art, or if you want to call it art, whatever. Good. But uh. Yeah. Thank God. Ed and I used to talk about you know we did belts and knee wraps. That would yeah. be great. Yep. Forget yeah. all the rest of it. Yeah. And as much as I loved my my the gear that you know I had, you know Titan was great and everything. But, you know, just Ed and I used to talk about it. it would be great if we just had belts and wraps. 
when so that what i'm getting at is the gear it took a turn somewhere you know the suits you guys wore are not the suits they have now oh yeah what took that over the edge what took it to that next point how oh, I think entertainment that? federations. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, where it stopped being powerlifting and it became strength entertainment. How much weight can you have on your back and let this equipment do it? Peter Thorne from uh, Inzer did a did a parody at one point where they chained a barbell to a forklift and he laid down and I love it. like 1,500 pounds. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not a joke. Right. That's, that's, that's you know. But yeah, powerlifting became strength entertainment, which seems to be calming down. But I hate, like I'll be on Facebook and you're scrolling through and some guy goes to squat. Look at this awesome squat. And the thing's four inches high. And then all the people, wow, that was amazing. It's like, do you understand what a squat is supposed to look like? That was ridiculous. And oh, it, it, ever since they did that autoplay, so as soon as it's on the screen and starts playing, I'm scrolling really fast because it's like yeah. oh, I've seen that clown before. Um, also, yeah. Also, yeah. Also, also, they slipped the monolith on, in on us, and the uh, back back when they first started instituting that monstrosity, what the uh, reasoning was is well that it's safer. And I, I kept asking. I said that presupposes there was some epidemic of walkout injuries, which there never was. We don't need that thing. Please don't say that that you're safer by using a monolift that allows you to handle 200 pounds more than you're realistically capable of. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Well, they Just said ba- the bench shirt was to protect your shoulders. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I would say this, if if in uh, track and field, someone invented, let's say Nike invented a shoe that allowed you to run 40% faster, which is what they're getting out of the bench shirts. They're getting 40% out of the bench shirts, okay? Oh, wow. If you had a shoe that could make you 40% faster, an 11-second 100-meter runner could beat Usain Bolt. And they'd ban that shoe so damn fast your head would spin. Oh, yeah. But in our sport, they embraced it. Oh, yeah, bring in that. Don't bring a a knife to a gunfight and all that kind of talk, you know. And it's like, that's ridiculous. If if someone invented a a pole that allowed pole vaulters to, to leap 42 feet, they'd ban that thing in a second. Yeah, you know what? Just to support your point, Marty, the um, I remember years ago at the Olympics, there were slap skates with the speed skaters, and yeah. it was too much of an advantage. And they just they straight banned it like within a very short period of time. They're like, that's way too much of a equipment performance advantage. It's uh, easy, you know, just ban it. Yeah, it's uh, the equipment makers. Everybody's in collusion. You got money and politics, and the the bench shirt was actually taken out of. Uh, the IPF and the USPF for several years, and it got put back in because of politics and money. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what I was wondering too: is how much of how much of the gear came, the rise in gear, was due to fracturing of federations and everybody wanting a new world record. That's right. Just you know, <laughs> and, and ima- imagine a, a 405 bencher, good bench. So he puts a shirt on. And he gets 600. What do you think he's going to say he benches? Yeah. 
It's going to say I'm a 600 bencher. No, you're not. In fact, we know a guy did just that, don't we, Kirk? <laughs> yeah. Or or the guy, um, I can't tell you. How, I've had people come up and, you know, they introduce themselves at a meet and, you know, well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a world champion, you know, 242 lifter. And I'm mm. like, you know, what were your numbers? And, you know, the dude didn't total 1,600. Yeah, yeah he's a world oh, champion of... World champion of Pennsylvania, the world champion of Ohio, the world champion <laughs> yeah, of California, the world champion of New Hampshire. Yeah, everybody's yeah. a world champion. So, uh, let's I, to put this in relative terms here. We're blowing your ten, minds. Ten years ago, I did a meet. I was always the raw guy at the equipment meets, so I was I was opening I don't know six hundred at two forty two. Uh, I was. There I was a kid that. There. there was a kid there yeah. opening seven hundred. Uh, so I and in a, in equipment. So I asked him, you know, what's your best squat raw? He had done four hundred five once in the gym. Oh yep. Christ! So opening his so what I'm getting at is you're a thousand for two. He's getting three hundred pounds. How much did you get out of your suit back then? I would say that if you took. I probably could have done it at that strength level at that point in time. I'd say that my equipment was giving me a hundred pounds. Yep. That's what I would say. Raps. Yeah, because Raps. in a full two seventy five, you know, I might have been able to double nine, maybe, oh. probably not, but it would be close. Yeah. So yeah, that equipment gave me a hundred pounds. Yeah. So the equipment came the along. The knee wraps and suit. <laughs> yeah. So, so basically, the, what we're saying is over maybe a 10-year period of time, the equipment tripled in what Quad, it could do. Quad, quadrupled. Or quadrupled, yeah. Quad, no, seriously, okay. quadrupled. Yeah. Wow. wow. Seriously. And it's, it's uh, yeah, yeah, quadrupled. Would you say the equipment is the number one reason why powerlifting didn't or hasn't made it to the Olympics? Yeah, it's never made it to the Olympics. Are you kidding me? They're not looking to have any more at-risk sports in the Olympics. They want less at-risk sports. They're trying to get rid of shot putting and discus, okay? They want ice skating. They want uh, surfing. They want golf. They don't want any sport where there's a, a chance that there's going to be performance-enhancing drugs. That whole Olympic thing is like some myth that was never going to happen in a million years. And there's no money. Yeah. There's no money in powerlifting. You know, you need a, a money sport. Yeah. Well, that's that's also has to. Uh, one would think the rise in gear has to do with that too, because at you one know, point all you needed was a belt, so you had what? nothing to sell these people. That's all you so, ever really need. Yeah. yeah. But I, mean, I haven't had a belt on in, in ten years. Yeah. Me, yeah. Me neither. But I mean, all of a sudden you add shirts and suits and then briefs under your suits and those things wear out so now you have you have money people need to spend on a consistent basis you know how long does yeah, the it's, shirt? It's, yeah, but. I don't know but yeah. it's but like Marty said it's it's an at-risk sport I think they want to get rid of the weightlifting yeah, yeah if they yeah. could they yeah. would yeah kick it out mm -hmm. yeah. well hey let me ask you guys about what's going on now we said you know the topic is then and now what kind of projects you guys have going on now? How are it's, how's your training now? I mean, Phil and I are 40 and 50-year-old guys, you know, so we're old enough to 
understand and enough to respect you guys, you know, just respect our elders and that kind of thing. Not that you guys are ancient. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, how's your training different? What keeps you motivated? But I'm also interested in your projects and, and what you have going on now. Well, I'm 51. And Marty and I, um, you know, I've been going up and helping him with, with that crew that he was talking about. And, you know, I'm trying to throw some weight around, but, you know, I'm a little banged up. So I'm a, I'm a little hit or miss. I'll, I'll go up sometimes, and it's like, uh, my shoulders hurt. I can't get the bar on my back. So I'll just help out. But, um, you know, so I'm just playing around. And uh, the only real project that I have going on right now is with uh, J.P. Bryson Iron Company. And we're making the Captain Kirk signature bar um, for with IPF specs. As a matter of fact, tomorrow I'm going to be signing off on the, the Neuralink on this thing. Yeah, we're so. yeah. That's a that's a terrific project. And uh, thank JP for for having the foresight to bring this thing from uh, oh talk over a couple of beers into a reality. And we're really, uh, we're really thrilled that this that this bar is actually gonna gonna see the light of day. Yeah, it'll be cool. We're also Kirk and I work with the American military on a uh, ongoing basis, and we find that uh, what they they approached us about some minimalistic training, and uh, we've helped them uh, for I guess going on ten years now. So we've been uh, intimately involved with uh, American and foreign spec ops guys trying to get them uh, stronger. And that's been extremely gratifying. Uh, in terms of me, uh, I like to, if the weather is decent, I live in the uh, uh, rural Pennsylvania. So I run in the woods in the morning and then I uh, will lift uh, three to four times a week, usually pick one or two exercises. Uh, at this point in my life, I'm able to uh, kick my own ass within about 15 minutes of, of <laughs> really serious, serious lifting, mm -hmm. and uh, I, it's it's I, I love it. I mean, I I still do it. I'm uh, I'm at 190 98 pounds now, which is the same weight I was in high school, and uh, feeling uh, feeling extremely vibrant and healthy despite being just shy of 70. Well. Boom chakalaka. Yeah. What if what if people wanted to are you guys open to I don't know, the seminars, things like that? What if somebody wanted yeah, to have you guys out? Yeah, we do that. Oh. Yeah, they could just message me on Facebook is the easiest thing. Okay. Yeah, or or uh, yeah, they can they can get in touch with me. Listen, I'm doing a, a weekly article for JP Bryce at ironcompany.com. So uh, we've got a stack of, I think, about 50 articles that I've written this year. Just any topic that comes into my head, he allows me to riff on. So it could be anything from, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, music and training to uh, squats to, you know, all kinds of stuff. So if, if you're interested in uh, expanding your current horizons a little bit, you might want to tune in and take a look at that. Also, the Purposeful Primitive book is still, uh, I, I wrote the book, I wanted to make it timeless when I wrote it, so I didn't do anything that was current uh, at the time, so that, that, that book is still a good, a good guide to how we train and our, our strategies. People yeah, can I have to also say that's... contact us through, um, with J.P. Price through that yeah. website also. Yeah. 
at Iron Company. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say the purple, purposeful primitive book. I have to say is one of the best reads there is. If you haven't read it and you're into training, you need to. Um, how long has it been out? Ten, ten years. Ten years. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say it's been about ten years since I read it the first time. So, um, I'm a sweet. Well, I think we'll call it there, guys. Yeah. Thanks, right. guys. Okay. Good enough. Thank you, guys. Incredible. Yep. See you tomorrow, Marty. Uh, <laughs> Catch you later. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need. 